We hope you enjoyed our new theme song. And here's the team. Hi, my name is Andrew Rimby. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I am one of the co-hosts of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, hi, my name is Adam Katz. My pronouns are he, him. I'm also one of the co-hosts and the editor of the website. Hi, I'm Erica Grimay. My pronouns are she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs. And I am the media manager for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, I'm Mary DePippi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am the chief contributor for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We hope you enjoy our episode. We're here with Natalie Morse, um, among other things, to talk about this new service called For the Love of Grad. And at least just in part to talk about um, what it's like to be in the sort of graduate world with a family, with a child as far as, yeah. And um, so welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm Adam, we have Andrew here, of course. Yep, hi everyone. And Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, and Natalie is one of our very first, um, we, we, we talked about our first cold call when we did um, the interview of Emily O'Brien. Natalie is the reverse. Natalie called us and said, hey, I've got a story to tell. And we said, yeah, you do. So here we are. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I can do a quick intro to my, my segue into academia, if that would be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because we're all like, we always like hearing people's backstory. Um, so... I'm an engineer, so STEM field, and I actually got recruited to do my master's. Um, so I'm from Michigan, and this guy, this professor was giving a talk at my school, and then I guess a few weeks later, he emailed and, and said, hey, were you that person that was like really active during my, my uh, presentation, and, and would you like to come study in North Carolina? And I'm like, uh, are you going to pay me? He's like, yep. And this was like during, yeah. And I was like, okay, literally. So I, I didn't, I didn't do my due diligence in terms of like looking for other programs or whatever. I just was like, oh, this is great. It, it'll work. I don't need to, you know, jump through all these hoops. And so I did that, and it was a good experience. Um, so very what good experience. Was this, if you don't mind? This was, yes, perfect. I did my undergrad at Michigan State, and this was at North Carolina State University okay. in Raleigh. Um, so it was super fun to like move to a new city, you know, single, um, just doing all the things. And like I said, he, you know, the, had the stipend and the tuition and all that. I mean, you're still poor, but you're not like, <laughs> you know, going into debt. Um, and so interesting. Okay, so while it was a good experience um, during this, during his recruitment of me, my buddy at Michigan State also wanted to go. And so he got in on it. And then this person became the golden child. So like the professor, like quickly, this person was on a pedestal and I, don't worry, I did fine, but like I was not the, the favorite. And so um, like he tried to make, he tried to offer this person, oh, stay for your PhD, whatever. And I was like, hey, can I stay for my PhD? And he was like, mm, nah, uh, I don't think this is really for you. And I, you know, kind of like, I mean, it, it, just, it happens. Exactly. It, it's, I think that that's fine because multiple things. I was very young. So like, I don't think I was really maybe ready. And, um, and I think that was showing up in my actions, right? Like I was 
going out to the bars. I was like having a lot of fun and um, maybe I just wasn't ready. So it's all just to be clear. I went to a bar during my PhD program. I, 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 we actually made a point of it. There was this one place, uh, was it called Tara? Um, Andrew knows about this place. Uh, we went, we went basically every week. It was, it was necessary in, in a way. So I don't, I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't go nuts, but like there, there is, there is a, there is a balance. Yes, of course. And gin and tonic tastes amazing after like seven hours of classes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a lot of things I'm sure that were, that were happening, but um, so, yeah, so then I got a job as a environmental consultant, which I did for a couple of years. And, um, but I kind of kept having this thing, like I want my PhD or I want to be a professor or I want to be like a research scientist, you know, for the EPA or something. And like the PhD is kind of very important at that level. So that's why I decided to go back. And now I did my due diligence and I did like the full court press to find the right program and um, reach out to professors and the whole, the whole nine. And that went really well. Um, I really enjoyed that process because I got to talk to a lot of different professors before confirming my, my place. Um, so I ended up you know, maybe talking to like 10 or so schools and then ended up applying seriously to three of them. So I applied at um, Cornell, University of Washington in Seattle and Colorado State in um, Fort Collins because those were just good for my water resource type programs that I was looking at. And so I got accepted to all of them and got, you know, flown out for the interview and all that. So that was good. And then I ended up um, picking Cornell um, because... A, they paid me the most money. B, they had name recognition. And C, I just could not believe that I was going to be going to like such a prestigious place, you know, when I had done big state schools. So it just felt like a very, like I could have just stayed in that same realm of like my comfort zone, but I was, you know, ready to push outside of that and just kind of get this whole new experience. So that's what I did. I was... I think 26 when I started. Um, so I don't know. You guys have talked to more people. Does that seem like, what's like the age range that you guys typically see? Well, we, one of our first interviews was with a woman who was in her 50s. So, yeah. But I think you mean for entering a PhD program, right? To clarify, that's Natalie's yes. question. Um, yeah. yeah. So I would say that I've seen just from the Stony Brook community, right, a small sample size. Um, In our English department, I've seen from right out of undergrad, like myself and Adam, so we were, I was 21. I was a couple of years out. I think I started at 24. Okay. Um, And then I've seen up to um, those in their 50s. Yeah. Yeah. So like we have had those who've retired from a career. I know someone who mm. retired and then came to pursue her passion and right. she's currently finishing right now. So Okay, but those are those are the tails. Where's the bell curve? Where's the Typically mid 20s, I think. That's what I, I would yeah. say mid 20s. Okay. Yeah, I think or, you're in the early you're 30s. in the yeah. Um, 
right in that mid range. Yeah. But the first, the first Sigma. Um, okay. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, give, us, give us the, you know, specific terms. Um, yes. So yeah. Yes. Well, how, we how we many finally were... get science jokes on our show. Yeah. How <laughs> many were in your cohort then, Natalie? So for this, and this is my experience, but there's not really like a cohort um, because it's not, eh. I mean, like, I guess maybe 12 or I guess we have a, like a department seminar, which is like all the new people. So that might be a cohort, but we all like splinter into our own labs and literally never see each other. So we're not really, you're more cohorty with your lab, which is going to have the gradation of students than you are with like the department. So yeah, there may have been like 12 ish people that started with me, but um, my lab group would be like my cohort in, in theory and so that we got huge this is bad i'll get into this at some point but um so between masters and phds my advisor had like 18 people which wow. is in insane and he did not handle it well uh, the best he could have and so because no one can right like it's an impossible workload to handle and so um things got a little bit messy yeah mm -hmm. so i'm curious I, we haven't really talked about this subject yet, but you mentioned that um, the sort of need for a PhD to work in certain fields, which um, did you, did you also find that, that like the, where you got your PhD would, would be, would be like a determining factor in what sort of job you got, or was it more, were they looking at like your level of achievement wherever you went? Well, so if I wanted to say it in academia, obviously, the more prestigious your pedigree, the more doors open for you. That's just, that's true anywhere, right? Like even in the working world, like if I work at Google, more doors are going to open for me than if, you know, so that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And then the jobs I was looking at in terms of like research scientists and stuff, like for the EPA or, um, you know, different groups like that, or like big NGOs, um, it's not required, but to get to a higher level, it's basically required. And so I just didn't want to be stuck doing grunt work and not being able to progress. So that's why I decided to get that. It's required, you mean getting a PhD, not? Correct, getting a PhD from anywhere. Yeah, the government doesn't really care where you get your PhD. Um, I mean, they might a little bit, but it's not like academia. They're just like, oh, you got it? Okay, great. They just. <laughs> So for everyone tuning in right now, what is your um, work situation like, Natalie? Ah, great idea, I great idea. You work at. Mm -hmm, perfect. So I finished my PhD and then my husband, and um, we'll talk about family at some point, um, was not real excited about doing the whole postdoc, move around a couple more times, you know, <laughs> you know, never be able to buy a house, just like jumping around. And so he was like, I would, he's from um, North Carolina. So he was saying, I'd really like to move back closer to that area. You know, maybe we can just get jobs and that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> and but, so, but to be clear, to be clear, you were interested in pursuing, you had at least some interest in pursuing uh, f a further academic I don't know, trail, shall we say, like you, 
I mean, so, somewhere along the line, you went from wanting to, wanting the government job and therefore wanting a PhD to wanting to do something mm. academic, specifically academic, specifically university centered with the PhD is what it sounds like. Absolutely, absolutely. That I think, and I'm generalizing, but I would say maybe roughly 90% of people going for the PhD believe that they are going to be an academic. I'm just totally pulling that number from thin air, but that's that was my experience that i mean things change along the way but i would say the majority of people go with the thought that i could teach at some point maybe not right away but hey yeah, maybe i'll be you, what's your p-value right that, <laughs> that's the thing i haven't used a p-value since i was like 18. <laughs> i do love stats um but uh where was I going um <laughs> yes I did so I did think about it but um with okay. the discussions with my husband and also um my personality I'm very much uh quick mover and sometimes in academia things just move slow but sometimes <laughs> I mean that's true no matter what um because I also work in a, a large company now and things things move very, very quick, but sometimes you still get caught up in the red tape. So that's just life. And you did ask me where I work and I will get there. So currently I'm a data scientist at BMW in South Carolina. And so BMW is a German company and we have, um, you know, buildings and plants and whatever all over the world. And South Carolina is our biggest plant worldwide. And there's also a, a tech office attached to, roughly attached to it. So that's where I work. So do you know why they chose North Carolina as the head? Um, um, so South Carolina and oh, South Carolina, yeah, sorry. That's okay. That's okay. But people care. Um, I think <laughs> it, it started small, right? It started like as a, it's, it's just, so it's, they started about 25 years ago and it's grown. So I don't think that they thought this is going to be our next flagship. I thought, I think they were just like, we sell cars in America. Why don't we make them there and like avoid some of the some of the shipping? And then it just you know they kept adding on and adding on. So the the facility has it's like a small campus. Literally, it has I think we employ like eleven thousand people. Wow. So yeah, so it's quite big. So yeah, it's and so I mean through the years they've developed an ecosystem and also all of these um, you know beneficial arrangements with the surrounding area and things that that make it very very helpful to be there mm. and what do you mean by that yeah i mean they have a whole supply network they have um lots of different like like so we work with like researchers at like clemson or university of south carolina so they have like a an ecosystem i guess that they've been cultivating of um you know a pipeline of mm -hmm. talent as well as you know, raw physical goods, like the whole shebang. So there are internships, I'm assuming, at the universities. Okay. Yeah. Andrew, okay. you were about to ask a question. I think. Oh, I was just going to ask, is your narrative, Natalie, like, you know, working as a, working at BMW, but in this type of position, common um, with your degree? Like, do you know others from Cornell who've done a similar type of trajectory? I would say yes, um, but 
So my background is environmental engineering, and now I work with a bunch of like computer scientists. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that, but um, but yeah, I think the whole data science track with a PhD and any kind of technical realm is fairly common. I have a bunch of other data scientist friends from the PhD world. Um, we did this fellowship together, which was freaking fantastic. I loved it. And um, yeah, so like some are like political scientists, linguistics, and then you've got like the, you know, astrophysicists and what, what have you, but different, different folks come at it from different sides. Yeah. And so if you had to put a type of percentage, how many are actually going into from those you still keep in contact with have been successful in landing a quote unquote academic position? Oh, 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 like from my department that I graduated with at Cornell? A fair amount. Um, yeah, one went to um, uh, Penn State. She's a professor there. And the other one is somewhere in Seattle, like is it University of Washington. Um, yeah, and another one went back to Ecuador. She's from Ecuador and just got a great position there. Um, so I would say maybe like 50 50. And, and it's in there, there is still in the pipeline, right? Like there's people who are doing the postdoc and whatever, and right. There's no guarantee of anything with that, but mm-hmm. they're still in the pipeline. Yeah. So you would say it seems similar to how a lot in STEM that we've had conversations with um, Adam and I, and just myself, that it really does seem like a 50, 50, 50 go into more of the tech industry or corporate industry and the other 50 go into academia where I feel like in the humanities, I would say maybe what one third go into an academic position, Adam, with the job market. Right. If maybe that's being very, very fair um, to the current situation. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to know those numbers. I just know that there are more, PhD students than jobs. So people necessarily go out into the world and yet it's not necessarily you get a PhD in order to get a, um, favorable reviews in business. You just get a PhD because it's an itch you have to scratch, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's a, very, that, it's a very, it's a very different perspective. Yeah. Well, and I know you were bringing up Natalie and I think it's now segueing into it about your advisor just being so overwhelmed. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, was that a common uh, experience pertinent to Cornell, or that was just this one advisor being bombarded with those in his field? Yeah, I think it was, I, I can't speak for the whole school, obviously, um, but, you know, I did have friends in different departments, um, and I think they, nobody had as many students as he did, so he was unique. And I think most people, you know, have a typical like four to six people per advisor, which made sense. Um, he was just unique because uh, I think people liked him. And so they thought like, oh, I like you. I'd rather work with you than these other folks. And, you know, you know how that is. It's like a cult of personality is the wrong word. But um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's also on the student, right? Like, you ultimately agree or pick your advisor at some level. And like, there is this. I mean, who would agree to be the 17th 
or 18 student of an advisor i like <laughs> i thought my advice i mean it's a different it's a different situation but i thought my advisor was was um taking on a lot with like three students hmm. well what's what's the um your advisor's role like can you maybe walk us through what oh, you yeah. handled because I think yeah. in the humanities, a it's a really different. It's a good point. Like right there, they're hand-holding us through writing and mm, you know, yeah. that's a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of time in terms of the project setup because depending on what you come in on for your funding, you might be like funded through like the USDA or something and like, okay, you're gonna do a project with uh, cover cropping and like da da da. Or like if you come in with your own money, like NSF or whatever, you call the shots, right? So you have to create the whole project. Um, or if you come in as like a teaching assistantship or, or an RA or research assistant, then you're kind of like flexible. So you can do a little bit of your own, a little bit of whatever they have. And like, you're kind of piecing it together. Uh -huh. Most most of us all really pieced it together in terms of like created our own project and scope of work. Mm -hmm. So his role or the advisor role in that is to guide you to make sure that you're not creating a project that's doomed to fail a project that's already been done or um, a project that's like going to take you 20 years right so they're they're supposed to be guiding that and then once the data is collected and whatnot then they're supposed to be helping you to craft the argument and to make sure that it's sound and then they review your paper and whatnot, and you submit that for a publication. So, I mean, there are definitely times where they should be more involved, and then there are times when it's like you're on your own. And so it kind of depends on where you are in the phase of it all. Hmm. And have, is it uncommon for someone to start a project and then drop out of the dissertation stage? What do you mean? Like that they would just leave um, without finishing the PhD because their project was just that. Oh, I see. What you're that's not, um, not not working. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the national rate for PhDs to not finish is like thirty-ish percent, thirty to forty percent don't finish. Um, and then in my group, um, what what is common is if you don't think you're going to finish, you, you uh, take a master's. So instead of doing the four-year track, you're like, I'm going to stop here. So that is, I would say, like the 30th percent would make sense in that regard. Yeah. So the whole pro to be clear, the whole process for the PhD takes four years. Four to six. Four to six. Okay. Okay. And I, got, I, I got out in four. And how many years of course do you have two years of coursework? Oh wow, okay. Okay. Did would you during that time you can also be starting projects. So everything can happen concurrently or you can space it out. It's just like how aggressive you want to be with your timeline. Yeah, yeah someone someone in my year um so we have we have um whatever someone in my year um when we were in coursework, she had already decided what she wanted to write her dissertation on. And so each of her seminar papers became 
basically half of a dissertation chapter and she ended up finishing in five years whereas mm -hmm. uh the rest of us have taken somewhat longer yeah yeah strategy is important and it's not always clear if you yeah so, so having done that masters i kind of knew the game a little bit so it really set me up to be like okay don't waste your time doing blah blah, blah. like let's get get after what you need to get after um so yeah it all worked out um but i mean so yeah if you put those things together my master's took me two my phd took me four so that's six mm -hmm. but i just broke them up so. Mm. so and when did then you know now we have the family element um oh yeah sure. so when, when did hitched? yeah well, <laughs> well when did you first then meet your husband i met him during my master's and that was probably why i was not 100% focused on my school, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> I know, I know, romance will be the death of you. Um, uh, and so, love. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. And so, um, yes, so we met there, but that's, so we got, oh, this is fun. I decided I wanted to do my PhD. We got engaged. We got, and so then I like, you know, figured out where I'm gonna go and whatever. So we got married quit our jobs and moved across the country in a two week span. It was fucking nuts, fucking nuts. <laughs> so you can always edit and bleep things, well, but- No, um... no, no, that's fine. First, <laughs> that, that, that one, those are, those are both staying. Yeah, Adam, Adam's approving of that. Um, <laughs> so... You have my imprimatur. Um, so you eloped. No, we got married. Go to a university. But then we quickly left. Yes, <laughs> yes, I don't I know. Yeah. Wait, so that's who he, I am. Was he also pursuing a grad degree? No. Okay. Oh, so he wasn't affiliated with Cornell. So we, this is the thing. We had to move without, like, I clearly had this position, but we had no idea what he was going to do. And that's so stressful because, like, he had just. Minor question. Yeah. And he had just, you know, started his career. And anyway, so you know, luckily he's very supportive and like was willing to do that. And so he got a great job actually, and it worked out fantastically, but um, you can't bank on that. And I think that's the thing that like holds a lot of people back is this like unknown. It's like, you can't, you, you can't take that to the bank, right? You have to move there. And luckily he, got, he literally got the job, I think like within weeks, like, I mean, immediately. So it was really good, but um, it could have been true. bad. Um, yes, uh, logistics. He does business, so he uh, does like supply chain things. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, do you, yeah, is yeah. that part of then the? Do you think knowing that where you were living was temporary in Ithaca was also part of fueling? Okay, I just need to put the pedal to the metal and just get this degree done, so then we can transition to the next stage of life. Yeah, I think so. And, and whether or not that's true, it's just how I felt. But like, I mean, life is life, like, it's gonna happen how it's happening. And me rushing it isn't gonna change it. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that definitely was a thought. And, um, and so it was definitely motivating. And yeah, and I had started my PhD, and I had done the mental math, I go, okay, I'm 26, plus four years, like, 31, like, I'll wait to have a kid. And then like, I'm like midway through my PhD and I'm like, mm, I kind of want a kid now. So, 
<laughs> so I um I did that. We did that. And um <laughs> <laughs> it it did catch me off guard. I kind of you know you've heard the stories, like you, you, everybody thinks, oh, It'll take me six months or a year, or a year and a half, or two weeks. And so then you're. Um... It takes nine months. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I knew exactly what you meant. And I said that anyway because I wanted to. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Please continue as um, if I hadn't just interrupted. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah. So I was doing my A. I remember vividly studying for my A exam, which was a very like, qualifying exam. And I was stressed the F out because I do that. I remember like being in this like cubby hole of this like basement of, of our lab area and just like studying, studying. And like I had like, then I like took a pregnancy test out and I was like, oh, shit. Shit. and um my husband was like away for the weekend mountain biking because he's awesome and does fun things while I study and be a terrible nerd and <laughs> and so I was like oh but um but it it really worked out so I had her in like my third year I guess my third year and um my advisor okay he was he has kids. So he has like two kids that are like, say like eight, 10 or something. But he thought he was being funny. And he was like, Oh, I'm going to like stop hiring women of your age because another girl in our lab had a baby like the year two before. And like, it just, it just made, like, I was just not in the good spot to hear that and take it as a joke. I was more like funny hate crime. Yeah. I just didn't enjoy that. And, um, it, and it, like I'm a pretty strong person, but I just didn't say anything. So it took me like a week to kind of get the courage or whatever to say like, Hey, that you probably shouldn't say that to, you know, young women or middle-aged women, whatever we are. (laughs) And, um, and he definitely apologized and he was like, Oh, I was just joking and whatever. Um, But so it was, it was good to have that conversation because I feel like hard conversations are hard, but they are, also for the next people because like you know he was going to he had more women that he was going to continue to mentor and needs to understand that that's not the way we want to you know uplift our our students (laughs) yeah yeah and he's not saying that to his male students who might have had a child right yeah because there's such a there is such a gendered yeah difference in how even when you said (laughs) in the masters like you said that you weren't ready to then go right into the phd but adam and i have had a conversation with a uh former uh english department grad who will come on eventually so i won't share everything right now but that we both had the same committee member and Um, on an exam and where her advice was, well, maybe you should leave the program. My advice was, no, I know you're gonna be able to get through this. And I do wonder, was that a gendered, Mm. like was this, you know, a way to sort out based on gender? And that could very well have been. Yeah. So hard to unravel it all. And that's, and, but that's the issue is like, 
especially my one of my good friends or my PhD was um, uh, a female of a female of color, and so we had these conversations where she was like, "I never know if it's because I am a female of color." Or if like they're just having a bad day and they would say this to anyone. And like, it's that crazy thought that like gets your brain spinning where you're like, and it's just unfortunate that that has to have. That's awful. And it's also, I mean, it's not like grad school is easy for, um, you know, hello, cis white male here. It's not like grad school is easy for those of us who have the privilege uh, that comes with not being queer uh and not uh whatever like all the things no exactly and so just and and um i don't know i didn't have a uh child and all the other like so to add to to add to that all of the things that you add to it like having a child which is another complication and then to add to that on top of it like not get not feeling like you get a straight answer from the people that you work with it's a it's a it's a basic it's a basic failing of the system but it does have real consequences because it's not just i mean for, from what you're saying it's not it's not just that you that you feel like like shit when when somebody talks to you in in this thoughtless manner it's also that you need you rely on these people for mm-hmm. feedback and if mm-hmm. you have to filter that feedback through what you think they're actually saying you could go crazy doing doing things like that it's i mean we we had a good relationship i'm not like i'm not painting him or the organization we're not not trying to take a shit on your on your advisor i'm sure your advisor was wonderful and competent and whatever it's just a manifestation of a phenomenon and it does add Mm. up yeah Yeah. so zero instances of this happening would be better than than one yeah, I, I will have to give credit to my pre- predecessor who, like I said, this woman who had a baby a few years before during her PhD. And like, you know, just the more you see it normalized and the more you, you know, can see, oh, okay, she breast pumped over here. Okay, that's where I can breast pump. You know, you just, <laughs> you have to like think these things. You have to see them. Um, you have to just be like, okay, yeah, it can be done and, and not, yeah. not freak out too much. So. Yeah, we had a PhD student when I first came, she brought her uh, son all the time and I would see him running around the hallway and like visiting offices. And I do think it was a really strategic way of normalizing, you know, as a department, we embrace. Yeah, that's a good idea. This type of student and we're not going to mm-hmm. hide that someone's having a child right. or that a woman especially for other female, the female grad students to realize that this is part of the department. And like, I remember children would attend, like they would come to meetings sometimes and you know, you can't get childcare all the time. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's something especially difficult, I think, and probably draining about being the first person to do something. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be something horrifying. Like, I mean, you know, this month we're mm-hmm. talking about like the first black woman to sit in the front of the bus or the first, like, it doesn't have to be something that difficult. It, mm. Anytime, anytime you're, you're working without a plan, it's difficult. Mm. And all the more so, the more resistant and even violent the, the people in your society are towards, uh, towards yeah. what you're doing.
Yeah, and but you did take yeah. such a vulnerable. Um, you had such. I can imagine how vulnerable you must have felt when you voiced your concern yeah. to your advisor. Yeah, and that's not a yeah. conversation to have at all. No, but um, but you just you get stronger by doing, and you know, of course, I was like probably meek and timid, but I still forced myself to say the words. So it's like, even though my delivery was crap, but like, I still got the words out. And I think that that is so helpful for anyone who's like, oh, I could never say that. Or I could never do that. It's like, well, yeah, it feels icky. Like your stomach feels like it's going to drop out of you, but you just have to say it. And so that's how it goes. Yeah. Well, and then, so you have your child the last year of your my, I think it's my third year so I have like a year and a half to like with her and so yeah child care is ridiculously expensive like especially in New York <laughs> when I moved to South Carolina my like daycare bill was like cut in half um to be fair I'm sure the the level of care also decreased but um it's expe- I mean, just for numbers for you guys, like if you wanted to do one kid full-time daycare in New York, in Ithaca, like not even the city, I'm talking like Ithaca, it was like two grand a uh, month. So, I mean, you're just like, that's a lot. So, yeah, that is that is what it is. And, and there was no university program with Cornell of a discount with grad students? I think that was with the discount. Oh. Um, um, yeah, I think we got like the same discount that the faculty got. So, <laughs> wow, that's, uh, that's awful. You weren't getting the yeah. same salary the faculty was getting. <laughs> no, I can't help but assume. You are correct in that assumption. So we ended up doing a. So that one was like through the the Cornell. It was like attached to the university, and it was like really nice and amazing. But I did a one from the home these were like these people had their early education degree and they were just fantastic and it had like you know six little kids and it was great it was so i think my bill was like 1800 or something so like okay i saved a little bit of money um but but with that the times the daycare provided was eight to three so i could only work from like 8 30 to 2 30 right because you have like drop off and pick off time to like go get them so I remember feeling very, very stressed about that level of time because you have to make, you felt like you had to make every second count so much so that it was like, I didn't even want to talk to you. Like, no, I don't want to say hi. Like I got shit to do, get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> and also you, you had that like extra level of like new parent stress, which is undescribable until you've done it. And obviously looking back, I'm like, oh, that's a unhealthy level of like stress right there. But um, in my seeing many friends and whatever become parents, it's just like impossible to avoid that like first chunk of new parent time when you're a maniac. And so quick, quick question. How long did you take off when you had eight eight weeks? Eight weeks. Wow. Yeah. And the university helped you with that? Or they yes, gave you a I got, poke in the eye. No, no, no. I got. I think I got paid the whole time. I think they gave you options. Like if you wanted to do, I think. So this is my advisor being great. I think six weeks paid, or you can do like, say you want like a year off or something. I think then they just 
you don't get paid, but you can like keep your position or whatever. So, um, but my advisor, I think he didn't care. He was like, do whatever you want. And so that's why I did my eight week thing. But he, he would have let me go for like 12 weeks. I'm sure it, it, it was more of a, I didn't want to be there for the next X years. So I had to get moving. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And were you, you said there was a predecessor Mm-hmm. With this experience of yeah, a parent, um, a mother in the program, yeah. yep. um, were you the only one though at that time having a child? Yeah, I think she had just graduated, but I had just you know just seen it maybe like the year before, so she had just moved on. But yeah, oh no, no, there's another woman in my in my group. She um had two older children, so they were like, you know, like say like third, fourth grade or something. Mm-hmm. Um. But that's different, right? Because they're like in school full time and like you don't have to like they can feed themselves with their hands. Their own hands. Um and yeah, you don't have like a daycare bill, right? Because school's free at that point. Um we need free child care, not free, just something. Something. Yeah, universal child care is not a bad program. Yeah. Where I do yeah. but um yeah. well did you feel isolated? from others in the program because of your experience? Or did they, I mean, you can't project about how others feel about you. Like, yeah, I, I think there was. Yeah, I had I had friends, friends outside of the program. So like, I didn't rely on my program to be everything to me. Mm-hmm. So like, so we could work together during the day and then I could go see other friends on the weekend or the evening and kind of get that connection. So I didn't feel like I lost a lot because I wasn't using my lab as a social network all the time. I mean, we did, we definitely did do social things together, but, um, and then during the, the program, you're, you're largely independent anyway. So you're working on your project and he's working on his project. And so like, it, I didn't, you don't need each other as much to, other than like the like let's have lunch or you know that kind of thing but yeah. I didn't I didn't feel ostracized in any way Mm-mm. yeah that's really healthy advice I think which is to not just be in a bubble with your own yeah um, like only with your department or mm-hmm. like having friends across departments which you said you knew those in other departments mm-hmm. having those outside of campus um, it keeps you grounded, or at least I've started to see this, especially ending my, nearing the end of the dissertation, and mm-hmm. that um, it's, you can get really isolated quickly if you're only relying on the network at the university. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. but It also helps to have the gentleman cohabitant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yes I did so yeah I was not a single mom I think that would be very very hard um so yes I definitely had a partner and a support and yeah yeah props to him yeah I, think, I mean I think it's just pulling pulling together a lot of the sort of um discussions that we've had over the months I think I think a lot of the grad students we've talked to have had this 
um, this partner situation and have had to rely on that for various things. Mm-hmm. Andrew is actually fairly uh, unusual in living alone, not having a steady romantic partner. I mean, you have all of us at the writing group. Yeah. We're, your, we're your bestest buds, but but it's yeah, you know, no, it's not I, the same. It it is yeah. it is true that 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 academic life can be isolating, and that um, a lot of the a lot of the way that people survive, although certainly not everybody, uh, is by um, having that sort of partner. Yeah, yeah, I, I like what you said though, but it also can be dangerous then because dumping everything on one person gets. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much one person can can help with or even handle. So yeah, I would say I made I made that mistake to a certain extent when I was, especially when I was in my last year at the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's freaking stressful, and you you just want some help, but yeah. yeah. I also work. think, like now that I'm going through the rolodex of those who are still uncoupled or I know are uncoupled probably I do it's interesting to me that a lot of them we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have a glossary for our gen z listeners (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) we will we will they're not even gonna know what a glossary is it's the thing at the back of the ebook (laughs) go on but that a lot are queer and who are not dating actively or, and I think a lot of that right. has to do with, you know, I can speak, um, those listening, if they didn't know I'm gay, but they know, <laughs> <laughs> they know by now. Um, and it's, you have a limited pool of eligible bachelors, um, uh, but. Yeah, that gay Mecca in Northern Suffolk County. Yeah, not not a very. Uh, All of the street signs are disco balls. <laughs> oh, that would be so. What a dream. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Now that's a mech, Now that's a queer. Mech. Keep writing, your congressman. Yeah. So, I think it does happen once in a while, but it's not as common as what I've seen with. Sometimes, I do know of a lot of couples who come in already like in your case, Natalie, like mm-hmm. I already have a partner, um, mm-hmm. a long-term partner and um, they're relying on each other for support. Maybe they're both in academia, but I actually have seen, there's a couple who lives really close to me, Natalie, who has a very similar narrative to yours, which is that the wife wanted to pursue a PhD the husband found a job in the area. It's worked out. They're actually just about to have a child and she's onto her dissertation stage. Yeah, so um, I do think there's a community um, of parents who, interestingly, I find that they're ending their PhD when the child situation happens. And I don't know if yeah. that's in, an intentional manifestation or if that's just it happens to usually fall that way I for me it was intentional like I I wanted to get to a point where like my courses were done and like I knew I had of I was on the like you know downward slope like the coasting slope out and not that the, all the phases are hard but for me the setting up phase was 
particularly hard. So um, once I had the ball rolling, I felt more like I could do as best I could as a parent. <laughs> but um, we'll see when she's when she writes her story in twenty years how how well I did. <laughs> it's kind of like I do see as I'm getting these chapters out the door starting to open for my romantic life. I'm like, oh, okay. I think the eligible Mr. Wright is around the corner. Yes. Uh, we look for, listeners, we look forward to your letters. <laughs> yeah, letters, and then eventually The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> Reality show, The Bachelor. Are they, oh my goodness. Are they doing an, a, an, uh, a gay one? No, but I am available. There was actually there was actually a <laughs> an epically gorgeous parody of The Bachelor starring George Takei, in which all of the so-called contestants just started coupling off with each other because why not? Oh, I have to watch this now. You have to watch this now. <laughs> but, You're okay, welcome. so we haven't well, talked uh, about any 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 questions you have about gay culture. I'll be happy to fill you in. Yeah, Adam Adam's the queer whisperer apparently. Um, <laughs> Natalie, how did the process for for the love of grad come to be? How did you arrive at that manifestation? Yeah. Manifestation. So I, um, like many of you and your listeners, am probably wired a little bit high strung and to be an achiever and to keep doing things. And so when you finish your PhD, um, you kind of, have more time and you get paid a lot more. And so you're kind of like, what can I do with this extra energy? And um, so I decided to start a business, um, you know, a side business. It's not my full-time um, career, but I very much enjoy helping people get to where they need to get to. Um, so the PhD process is pretty fuzzy and not super well known unless you do it. And I think there are a lot of people who are super passionate about their career and you know making a difference but they just get kind of stuck like they can't quite figure out how to get into the program how to get funded and so I, I mainly help them with that I do help some PhDs like kind of more on like a one-on-one -on -one basis of like hey how do we get you through this next hard phase that you're stuck on and um but but the majority of the people I work with are like how do we get in and and on so yeah. what are so what are some of the issues that you come across for people getting in? Yeah. Um, so like some international students just have no idea. So that's just like they don't know how to communicate, or they different cultures just obviously communicate differently. And I really have to kind of coach them to be a little bit more um, like less abrasive, I would say, or like less. Like, you know, hey, let's just like take this thing one thing at a time and we'll like, go through it. But like, it seems like sometimes they're so excited. They just want to like, hey, hire me. And I'm like, well, no one's really going to hire you that way. So let's take it as a softer approach. Mm -hmm. And then other people, um, they don't understand research. They don't even know how to know who's doing what they're interested in and how to connect and like what options are available for you. Um, and then like the writing part. So I help edit and things to make sure that they show up the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and of course so, we're attaching your website here and um, anyone who's interested in, would you describe this as a consulting business? 
Yeah, I've started, yeah, I guess consulting. Yes, that's a good term. And I basically created a 12 week course. So that way when you go from like zero to submitted. So like finding your program, making contact with professors, getting our resume in order, our, our written materials, all that, like getting our fellowship applications in. And so it's basically like modules that they do on a week by week. And then each week there's a 30 minute session with me. So that way nobody gets lost. And if you have questions, we get them all taken care of. So you don't just sit and spin your wheels for hours. So it's actually working really well. People like, I think they like the hybrid. They like doing things on their own because like we all need our own time to process and do. And then they like a human because, you know, we just have so many crazy thoughts in our head that we need a human to help us like make sense of everything and, and keep moving. Wow. I just so, love this business. It's yeah. I'm just expressing you my, want to join my enthusiasm. <laughs> it's, a nice, it's a nice idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. You know what you know what I'll do. I will interview you guys at some point um, just to, and I, I'm not the best about putting my content out there, but so I have like a, a very small Facebook group that I, you know, pop in and, and put, tips and stuff on but yeah so maybe at some point i'll interview you guys Ooh. and then uh po cross post yeah yeah turn the tables i like that yeah. <laughs> we like when yes. we like when the rules are reversed here um adam i know you've been wanting yes. to ask a question andrew andrew likes being chased <laughs> uh no i'm curious <laughs> sorry i literally i i could have resisted but it would have hurt okay okay the serious so question. no so i'm so I'm curious, I mean, yeah, 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 no. So the seed, the seed of a business is you usually comes from like seeing a lack somewhere, right? Yeah. As you go through the journey. So I'm curious what sorts of things you saw as you were going through this journey that, that made you think, here's a place for me to intervene and put up my shingle. Multiple things. Um, what I would see people getting into programs and like paying for degrees when I'm like, you could have got a very similar degree and gotten funding. Right. And that hurt, that hurt, um, just like friends or, you know, whoever. Um, and that's not always the case. I mean, there are professional degrees where you get like a one year, you know, uh, like they call it like an MNG or like, you know, an MBA, certain things like you do pay for. And even, even MBAs, you can get fellowships and things for. So I have worked with people trying to get MBAs anyway. So that just alone, I was like, nah. Like, let's just not go into this amount of debt for this. Yeah. Um, so that was the first thing. And then the second thing would just be that, like, the people just being lost, just being like, I want to do it. But then them never actually doing it because they couldn't even see the steps. They couldn't even, like, put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing would be seeing people suffer in a PhD or something unnecessarily. And, and that's why, like, there are lots of services that will, you know, edit your essays, like right in here, send me your essay, give me 400 bucks and I'll return it to you. And then you submit. But I always, always have a one-on-one -on -one consult. Even if I just do an essay review, I still make this happen because I want to be like, do you know what you're getting into? Is this a good fit for you? Do you understand what, what's going to happen? Um, just because I feel like yeah, you, you see people start a PhD and then they quit because they're in the wrong department, they're with the wrong advisor, they didn't understand what it was going to entail, like 
all that stuff that, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I'm not trying to dissuade people from going. I'm just trying yeah. to be like, no, of course, it's expectation versus reality, right? Yeah. And, and we all have some level of like dream and excitement. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. Right. It's not, it's not all like, you know, reality, like austere. We have to have some wonder and excitement and like, that's, and also I enjoy talking to people who have wonder and excitement and passion because, um, you know, once you do enter the career space, um, some of that is not as readily available as you guys are all, you know, in academia. Right. Yeah. And also I love that you brought up too about knowing when PhDs have a master's in root. Like they had just added that when I arrived with the English department that you're, if you think that the dissertation, especially, okay, I've just done my qualifying exams or as what we call them are usually the oral exam. Um, But I had a friend and the dissertation was just not for them. Like they couldn't envision doing that type of research and they wanted to go into a publishing industry. So they said, okay, I'm gonna get the masters and then, you know, they've had it funded and are now in the publishing field. And I gave that person so much credit because it takes a lot to say, you know, I won out. Like I know that I've I've satisfied what I needed to do. And especially because the myth of academia of, it's not a myth, but the allure right, especially of a PhD program, the advice, my friend was getting advice from faculty, like, no, no, just stay, just stay. I'm sure you'll really enjoy it. And there's a really powerful sunk cost fallacy at work. Mm. Um, Yes. And I can, I can say from experience, um, having, you know, having handed in my dissertation a year ago in December, there were, there were, there were entire years where that that terminal master's degree was looking like the inn at the end of the road in a snowstorm. It was, it 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 was like for a while it was looking like that's what it was going to be, and then for I, I can't even I can't I can barely even inhabit my past self enough to tell you the reasoning that made me continue. But it was it was it was as they say, touch and go. Mm. Yeah. And and that was part of the things that I, like I said that I also see a sh- huge need for even beyond like actual therapy because I feel like every PhD student's in therapy at some point. Or should they? Which is like also a red flag. Not nothing wrong with therapy but like when the whole effing population is in it like yeah. Maybe the job is making you crazy. The whole thing. And so like, uh, you know, what I like to do is like, give people the power, like you are so capable of doing whatever you set your mind to. And this thing that your brain is like dying on right now is not, (laughs) is not the end all be all. And like, how do you get through it? Or how do you make the decisions for yourself that are going to lead you to where you want to be? And so like, I mean, The the issue with that is, though, is that I don't feel like, and maybe you guys can tell me, but I don't feel like asking PhDs to pay for the type of service is probably the soundest 
decision or like business decision and also like you know which type of service like uh i guess like coaching i guess it would be like coaching or it's not therapy but it's i guess like coaching right like how do we mm-hmm. help you accomplish your goals um yeah and so i mean like it's gotten very mainstream for like you know career coaching or you know general life coaching but I, it's in, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about how the, the PhD population would approach that. Because in my brain, maybe it's self-limiting, but I feel like, you know, it's such a financially strapped population yeah. that, that I wouldn't want to, you know, say, hey, pay for this extra thing. But that's... Yeah. No, it, 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 would be, it would be more... I was going to say something similar, but since since you broached it, uh, here we are, right? It's uh, outside career coaching for a PhD. It like it would be really hard, even even if it is, and it sounds like it is a useful service. It would be really hard to convince myself back in that headspace. Uh, it would it would have been really hard to convince myself to to shell out money for this sort of thing unless I was really desperate. Uh, yeah, which I was. And so I might have um, a better, it, it's, it's possible that a better course would be to like create a module that, that a university could um, adopt for themselves because that is one thing that I think, and we've talked about this before, Andrew, uh, that is one thing that I think uh, universities drop the ball on something fierce is assuming that because PhD students are adults and we, and we are, um, that we don't need coaching the way undergrads do. And we don't, but we need coaching. So like an office of, some sort of office of PhD guidance would be a really great uh, addition to any university, assuming that you don't want universities, uh, that, you know, that you don't want your grad students to constantly be going crazy with depression and anxiety and drug use and suicidal tendencies and all the rest of it. Yeah, like, like being part of- even, Something has to change. Something has to change. Well, even from a university standpoint, from just a dollars, if I'm if I'm funding all you guys and 30% of you are quitting, that's a, that's a lost cost for me as a university. Like, true, you know, if you just put it even in those terms. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree with you 100% that, yeah, there needs to be something either at the university level um, and it needs to be more than just like a, you know, oh, here's my career office, that there's two people for the entire population. And it's like, well, yeah. I'm not going to come to you with anything other than like, can you see my resume? Like what, you know what I mean? Yeah, like I, I've made use of the career center for CV workshopping and talking about a specific fellowship I was applying for. And I, and the advisor who I went to said, I wish that more humanities PhDs came to me, but it seems like the STEM fields are the ones really utilizing it. But then I realized that most of their offerings were for STEM PhDs. So like their programming wasn't matching. Like I knew that they could handle humanities PhDs, but it had to be word of mouth communication. And then, There is a program at Stony Brook, I'll have to find it so we can include it in our episode notes, um, where one of my friends was doing a type of AAC um, career career coaching uh, workshop, like was part of the semester, maybe it was a year long workshop, 
But everything I found tends to always be alt-ac defined. Like, well, Just to be clear, alt-ac means mm-hmm. using your academic degree to find a non-academic job, correct? Yes, yes. Even though there's a lot of questioning about that term right now because it seems like... It's more the the majority versus the min- yeah, versus exactly. the alternative. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's not an alternative. It tends to be, yeah. The thing. What everyone, right. what the pathway is. But um, yeah, I don't, it would be wonderful, I think, Natalie, to have this type of career consulting um, embedded within departments. Like I think yeah. departments had yeah. a workshop that everyone was re- required to just be a part of, especially, I think I've always said, once you start, after your qualifying exams, you're thrown in the pool and you're like, well, where's, where's the floaty? Where's the noodle? Like, where's anything to grab a hold of? And, uh, you know, yeah, you're, you're expected to take that initiative on um, by yourself. And well, I let me let me interject yeah. for a moment. One of the things that I think happens, certainly, certainly some one of the things that happened in my um, PhD process, and I would have been dead in the water without it, was that my advisor took on some of that responsibility, like helped me to triage what I needed to do when I needed to do it, like how to mm-hmm. finish my project. Um, that, like doesn't that. that doesn't always happen. That doesn't always happen. Not only does it not always happen, but he's he was he was at the time raising a kid, working towards tenure, like mm. busy, busy, right? I mean, if he had not also taken this on, which which I'm glad he did, but I mean, mm-hmm. you know, where would I be? And and where would I have gone instead? Would I have gone somewhere instead? I'm not. These are these are questions. Mm-hmm. No, no I, I agree with you completely. That's why, like, for this business, I'm mainly focusing on getting people in because I feel like that is a you know fairly definable thing. There's like a start, there's an end right. to that, and um, and same thing. Like, I'm not you know presuming to know where they're coming from, so that way it's just like everybody's starting from fresh. So it works really well. But you know when you're knee deep in a PhD. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that business move would make more sense through the universities. And, but, you know, they have people who are paid to do this. So it's like, mm-hmm. it, it, so it, it, um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's like, well, who am I to tell them how to do their job? But at the same time, there needs to be something. And I mean, so you're allowed to say, like, if you see a bus careening down the road with one tire of flame and smoke coming out of the hood, <laughs> you're allowed to say, hey, I think you're driving that bus wrong. And they'll be like, who are you to tell me to do my job? Are you sure it's your job? Yeah, yeah. Do you Good know point. how to do like, but you're right, Adam, we relied on and I do right now my um advisor and director for the dissertation who's yeah. taken on that okay let's talk about career options let's talk about what you're looking at for applications um yeah you're and anxious thing- about the pan you're anxious about the pandemic right but then a lot of that it, it's a lot for one person as an advisor to take right. on and right. we do have 
And I'm really not trying to throw any shade to the job market team in our department. But I don't I also think that there's not a a clear definition of what their task is for the grad students. Like right now, the job market advisor, if you want to call the position that, um, is to basically maybe send us um, academic searches once in a while. Um, yeah, but in terms of actually all meeting together and just talking about, well, where are we checking in with our goals right now? Like, what, are, what do we want to apply for? That infrastructure doesn't exist. That's something that we've all had to create ourselves. Talking, like Adam and I talking to each other, talking with yeah. you right now, and Adam. Yeah, exactly. I, I think one of the one of the unexpected sort of um, points of interest in this conversation with Natalie is that a lot of the reason why we started the Ivory Tower Butler Room matches and tracks with uh, why you started your consulting business. Mm -hmm. um, right, the, the like setting up the expectations of students who are applying to the program. I definitely had those expectations set up for me, but like, um, you know, I was still in the program and there's still like, you can't just do that once, you have to do it continuously, right? Because mm -hmm. there's, there's still gonna be that voice in my head. Like, um, I, I wanna be in a certain place and I'm not in a certain place. So there must be something wrong with me. There's no, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing useful about that line of thought, but it's, you know, stuck in there. Like, mm -hmm. it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And we wanted to really navigate what we're doing, which is crises and anxieties yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. and airing all of the dirty laundry. Yeah. And this like just, Saying what you, yeah, what you see is not a figment of your imagination. Right, mm. and all of this, all of all of these thoughts were there already before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I I looked around and yeah, everybody was like basically clutching their last little bit of like, like I'm okay, I'm okay. Don't ask me again. But right now, I'm fucking okay. You know, and it was it. I went to those moments too, right? I, it, for me, it was like this, you know, sinusoidal. Like sometimes I was good, sometimes I was bad. Um, honestly, having my kid probably kept me a little bit more sane because I couldn't go down too many rabbit holes. I was like, I had to. Right. You know, any any rabbit hole you went down, you had to be done by 2.30. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're done. Um, but yeah, so I, I would be interested, and I, I need to do this work where I need to maybe reach out to some universities and just understand, because there's also things that we can't see, right? I know that they care. Like, I know that they're very much wanting us all to succeed, but something is just not connecting. Right. <laughs> so, yes. so, And it's yeah. probably right. the overburdened nature of those who are expected to take on all of these tasks that they don't have enough staff. Oh, yeah, certainly. Like, well, we, we've, we've experienced this firsthand, right? I mean, Andrew has been in contact with one of the deans at Stony Brook, mm -hmm. and they've been very encouraging of our podcast where we spend most of our time criticizing deans. <laughs> um, well, and, uh, yeah, not uh, specifically deans, but... <laughs> yeah. In general. Yeah, yes, yes, just administration, administration. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and no, and I mean, there, there, there are two options. Um, I like to think, uh, I mean, one option is that they have no idea what we're doing and they're accidentally throwing us a bone and that, thank, thank you for that. Well, you'll never hear this if that's true. Uh, but the other, the other option, which is what I like to think is that, is that they actually are attempting to, you know, do what they think uh, best benefits the university. And it's just, it's hard. And that's why you end up having these gaping, chasmic uh, places where, where the depressed students and the suicidal students and, mm. and, and just the, the just plain anxious students fall through. Yeah. yeah, well, being in like corporate America, same thing, like we hire, you know, consultants or third parties to do all this work. And it's not that we're not capable, it's that we just don't have the resources. Like, and it's the same thing for, I think these universities or whatever, it's like, not that they're not capable of providing all these services. It's just like, they just don't have the headcount. They don't have right. the, the capacity. Right. And, and I think what would be a great service is to do it like dual is to like, how do we teach these PhDs to be their own advocate and their own, you know, boss, if you will. And also, you know, how do we have the faculty and things to, to support that? Like, yes. You know, and facilitate, so. I really think, I hope that, um, as Dean Sampson listens to this, that, and other deans hopefully, and other administrators, that they wanna hear the really candid conversations that they're right. not getting a chance to actually listen to because we don't have the infrastructure to facilitate and mediate these conversations. Right. And it's why I think it's important for faculty to offer spaces to hear from grad, <clears throat> excuse me, to hear from grad student concerns yeah. And a lot of the times I think that that infrastructure doesn't exist, which, yeah. and it's not that the faculty don't want to hear concerns. There's just no precedent. Like I just remember that there's certain meetings that grad students can't go to and that like, what? Um, like department meetings um, that sometimes emails only get sent to faculty even though they pertain to grad students. So then we get it forwarded to us, which feels very like, okay, you've separated the grad students who are also teaching and their instructors. So it right. becomes right this really, who's, what kind of position are the grad students in? Are they, um, is there a power differential here you mean and we, we know there subordinates is. yeah like we know that there is a power differential obviously um with faculty and grad students but i think how is a department navigating this or mm -hmm. are they not and not questioning it it's in my opinion it's just at it's asking a lot of all of these positions and people it's just asking a lot <laughs> and and we have to think about that, yeah. about what we're asking. It yeah, is, we really need I mean, industrial. This is certainly an ongoing conversation. Yeah, we need industrial psychologists, in my opinion. Oh my goodness. To really come in and <laughs> do workplace dynamic mediation. It's it's nuts. Yeah. Um, any 
Any more questions for me? Did I cover everything? I think you've covered a lot. <laughs> you give yeah, it, you've given lot. me a lot of just, um, well, excitement that you created this yeah. business. Cool. And are, like Adam said, you found a lack. You're addressing the lack. You're trying to provide a narrative and provide a service mm -hmm. and um, make people feel connected who are struggling to keep their head above water and yeah yeah necessary so i hope that there's you know you're the beginning of a wave of more i'll be in, yeah i'll be interested to see um yeah it'll be fun and i i need to keep giving more feedback and connecting with different different folks so thank you so much for taking the time well thank you so much too for taking time yeah on, it was a real um, on a saturday yeah. night a rare pleasure to talk to you yeah 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 we're not going to mention when this is happening <laughs> yeah like we're doing fun things on saturday we're cool people oh my god so, oh yeah yeah we're you know we're uh binge watching shows and Every, yeah. everybody's got a everybody's got a fun date later that's that, that's what that's what we'll tell ourselves by later i mean in like july or august <sighs> one hopes yeah yeah that day will come it will come. We're I so keep, close. I repeat it. We are. I can. We're on the horizon. Oh it is goodness. on the horizon. I don't know if we're on the horizon. That would be an odd. <laughs> we are on the horizon for somebody else. No. Whoa. Whoa. Whoa very deep. This is very yeah. philosophical. I just, I just blew Natalie's mind. I know. Um, <laughs> It's almost like Nietzsche. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Natalie. Yes, uh, and I'll I'll stay in touch and I'll, I'll follow up and get you guys a short short uh, talk about how you guys got to where you are. Yes. Okay, we're gonna put a bookmark in this. Please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email, and a brand new donate button so you can support what we do here. Thanks for listening. And now here's our theme song, Loverman, written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ram Ramirez, and James Sherman in a new rendition co-created by Anne Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames. Mm -hmm.